If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider contributing to our crowdfunding page on the platform Patreon. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a wide variety of rewards, the best of which is a collection of successful magazine pitches from Simon, myself and previous co-hosts and friends of the show. Simon is going to tell you a little bit about our latest contributor. Our latest contributor is Sven Hughes. Sven's first novel, which is called Selling St. Christopher, is a contemporary spy thriller and is now being prepared for publication. And he's just signed up to the literary agent's Bell Lomax Moriton. It's early days for him as a novelist, but we're really looking forward to seeing what he does going forward. Thanks very much for your support, Sven. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with magazine editor Ed Needham. We spoke to Ed about his time at FHM at the height of Lads Mags in the 1990s, his career at Maxim and Rolling Stone, and Strong Words, the literary magazine which he produces entirely by himself. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome Ed to Always Take Notes. It's great to have you on the show. Could you start by telling us about Strong Words, this extraordinarily ambitious project that you do single-handedly every six weeks? Okay, so Strong Words is a magazine about books, uh, about new books, and one of the exceptional aspects of it, uh, is it exceptional in every way, uh, but um, is that I produce it myself. So I write the whole thing, I um, produce the whole thing, and there and uh, it comes out, as you mentioned, six times uh, every six weeks. So that's nine times a year. Um, and so it's uh, I've worked in magazines all my life, but this is the only time I've produced um, a magazine on my own. And how is your sort of level of, of sanity and mental health after <laughs> after doing this project? And I, I say this <laughs> genuinely because we, we just had um, Samantha Submarinian uh on and maybe slightly mangling his name but a very distinguished magazine writer who uh, we were interviewing him a little while ago and he told us about his like utterly grueling workload which what, what are his hours rachel like he gets up at 5 30 in the morning works to mid-morning short break 6 p.m sometimes seven days a week and he he believed this to be totally unsustainable and he was possibly you know he needed to make step changes in his work-life balance so i mean how how are you coping well, I completely identify with that uh, schedule because it is a it is a seven days a week task, and there are there are three components to it really. There should be four. There's one component is missing, which I'll tell you about in a moment. The three components are walking, reading, and writing. And so I start at uh, I get up at quarter to six in the morning, and uh, I tend to stay at my girlfriend's house, which is six miles away. So I walk. Get up at quarter to six, walk from her house to mine, work at mine, and the day is principally just reading and writing. You know, it's a, it's a, um, I we calculated uh, not so long ago that for each issue, so that's a six week issue, I read the equivalent of War and Peace every week, and I write the equivalent of The Great Gatsby every issue. And so there's not much time for anything else until it gets to about uh, six o'clock in the evening when I walk back again. And so it's, a, it's about three hours of walking every day as well. And during that, those three hours, I listen to audiobooks. So it's another way of, of consuming um, material. And I do it, you know, because I really enjoy doing it. It's, the, it's, you know, a lot of these things I would be doing anyway. I like walking, I like reading, I like writing. So it's not as if I'm suddenly doing something which is completely alien or foreign or unpleasant. Um, but uh, there is no 
sort of gap for anything else. Uh, and the fourth component that is kind of missing from these three, uh, which I've kind of learned a little bit to my cost, is marketing. So really, I think running a business, and this is a magazine, is a, this is a business, I do it to make a living, uh, it should be about 50% kind of editorial and 50% marketing. But like most people, I think, who've worked in uh, the magazine industry and probably in all businesses, you know, they tend to be very comp- compartmentalised and people know their own bit and are great experts in their own bit and complete, um, uh, uh, completely ignorant of what the people in the office next door do or the people on the floor above or below do and tend to be a bit disdainful of it. So certainly working in magazines, editorial is everything. It's the words and pictures and headlines and covers which sell the product. And the people in the marketing department, I don't really know what they do, but it can't be that important. And uh, since producing my own magazine, it's been going for getting on for three years now, uh, I my respect for people in the marketing department has gone through a 180 degree transformation. You design it yourself as well. Did you have to sort of teach yourself the basics of graphic design? <laughs> well, this is the one sort of skill, the one editorial skill that I don't have. So I pay a designer for two weeks uh, to design it in every issue. But it was very much conceptualized with um, uh, that it would be made of templates that I could sort of fill in each issue. So I can't design a page, but I can certainly put copy into a template and put a picture in and write a headline on. Uh, so I, I, my idea was that actually if I just build a sort of template issue, then I could produce a sort of an identikit issue by changing the copy and pictures each issue. But I, I, it's, it's, um, I think that it, didn't, it didn't quite work. It needs, you know, if I, if I wanted to introduce new things, I wanted to look a bit different. Um, then it needs it needs a designer, and that's the one skill that I have to buy in from outside. Is the plan that it's going to remain a, a one man band, or are you going to bring in? <laughs> are you recruiting? Well, it's it's not a means to an end. No, I mean, I mean, or sorry, it's 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 not an end in itself. Uh, you know, my goal is not to just constantly write uh, the whole thing. It would be lovely to bring some other people in, but um, uh, it's uh, the, the the reason I did it in the first place is because I didn't. I you know only know how to do magazines. I don't really know how to do anything else. So I thought, well, let's see if I you know the, the technology of magazine production has advanced so much that I thought, how few people would it be possible to produce my own magazine with? You know, when I started doing magazines in the in the sort of nineties, early early nineties, um, I was once taken to see the all some of the um, external. Uh, labour that went into producing magazines in what used to be called the colour house or the repro house. So these people actually make the pages ready to go to the printers. It's a very technical uh, stage uh, that had to be done, again, by, by people who are trained in the use of these machines that I just couldn't, you know, you could send and look at them all day and you wouldn't be able to work out what they did, let alone how to work them. Uh, and an entire building full of this machinery was required. When I was working in the United States um, at, uh, at FHM, the pages had to be biked to the airport and flown to another part of the country, a thousand miles away to be put together. So the magazine sort of technology has changed so much in the last two or three decades. that I, I thought, well, is it actually possible to do a magazine on oneself or by oneself? Or is it actually possible? You know, how many people would it take? And I thought, well, I'm going to try and do it on my own and see if it works. And it turns out that uh, that I could do it. 
But uh, to answer your question, you know, I, the goal is not to keep on doing it on my own forever, but it is, you know, in order to keep the costs right down um, uh, for the time being, I'm doing it myself. And it's also partly because I don't want to, um, you know, people people do say, you know, maybe you could get, some, you know, people would do it, I'm sure people would do it for nothing for a byline, you know, people who are looking to get a, uh, students who are looking to get a start or, um, uh, you know, people who just, just like writing for pleasure. Um, I'm sure people would do it for nothing, but I don't, I kind of don't want people to do it for nothing uh, because I feel it's just wrong. I feel too guilty about it. And I think people should be paid for what they're doing. Uh, but also I kind of like, you know, I like my, I I like my way of doing it. And I fear that if I, if I certainly, if I opened it up for people who were doing me a favour, then, um, you, you know, I'd probably end up falling out with them because I want it done a particular way. And uh, whereas um, people would like to see their own work in all its glory, untainted by somebody else's hand. <laughs> um, when you set up uh, Strong Words three years ago in 2017, um, what did you want to, what gap in the market did you want to fill? Well, uh, I suppose my original goal was how can I make a living? Um, and I thought where, so it was, I was, it was a partly a mixture of what can I do on my own and where do I think there is something missing? So, so the, I soon kind of, I kind of got to books because I thought, well, the, you know, book people will understand you know, if anyone is going to appreciate a, an, an ink on paper product, it's going to be people who read books. You know, the magic of holding something in your hand, the power of the, you know, the written word on on, on a piece of paper. Um, book readers will get that. So there are there are a couple of other ideas that I thought of, but I came to books and I I came to books also because I really like reading about books. But the amount of sort of square footage devoted for books in the press has really shrunk because there's, you know, the press has been affected by all sorts of reasons, but as advertising has vanished, the pages just aren't there for people to review books. So um, the book industry doesn't get anything like the amount of, you know, review square footage that it that it needs. Um, and also the way in which books are reviewed in too many places, it kind of goes over my head a bit. You know, I, like, I buy a lot of books. I'm a reasonably uh, intelligent person, but... I think too often I found critics writing about books either with a level of uh, snobbery that put me off or a level of sort of technical, sort of academic language, which is fine if you're writing for other academics, but these are technical expressions that, um, you know, that expert you, experts used. And, and to see that kind of creeping into a sort of newspaper reviews of, uh, of books, again, it put me off. So I felt that there wasn't any one place writing about books for people who just buy books books for pleasure you know that they they're, they're going on holiday or because they, they just like reading um so that's the that's the goal it's a, and i was reading a book the other day about um uh who's uh, oh i looked at uh, anthony bourdain's kitchen confidential who and his big thing is about being a bistro chef you know he's not a sort of michelin star guy he is a guy who tries to write, who tries to pr produce food of a really high level, but for those people who aren't, you know, they don't want all the 
intimidating cutlery of the uh, uh, you know the Michelin star restaurant. They don't want all the to be terrified by the wine list. All these kind of things. So it's I want it to be. It's like a bistro level magazine where you can you know you're going to get great stuff. It's really reliable. It's of really high quality. But it's kind of for the for the the average person. You know you don't need a, any sort of special education in uh, in uh, in wine lists and cutlery to come and enjoy. So we wanted to come back to, to strong words later in the interview, but can we roll back now to your entry into journalism and how you how you got your start? So it was you were a teacher and you lived abroad, right, in Spain, and and also you grew up in, in Cambridge. I grew up in Cambridge. I wanted to see. Did you? Do, yeah. Did you grow up in Cambridge itself? Or? I grew up just outside of Cambridge in a, a small village just to the south of Cambridge called Newton, which is a tiny speck. Uh, about five miles to the south of Cambridge. Okay, I grew up in Cambridge, and I don't know it, so it must be must be quite um, <laughs> quite remote. But Gia, can you tell us about tell us your your origin story, as it were? Well, I did live in Spain. I went to Spain after after I was at university for the same reason that many people um, go abroad after university because I, I just didn't know what to do, and I had a friend who lived in Spain, so that's, I thought that sounds like fun, and. Uh, so I thought, well, maybe I'll go for a year and see what happens. But I ended up staying for seven years and I did teach for a bit and I absolutely detested teaching. That, you know, I'd realised very early on, you know, this is not for me. Um, so I became a translator, and uh, which was very much for me. And I, I really enjoyed uh, being a translator. But one of the things that happened in Spain um, that really made a difference to me was that the, the uh, really sort of making the first contact with glossy magazines. Because this, so this was sort of late eighties, early nineties. You have to remember, it took a couple of days for the papers to arrive in Spain. You know, the, so the, the, this is obviously pre-internet. So any kind of connection with the outside world was very slow and probably not all that different to the way it had been in the in the nineteenth century. You know, it took a while. You, you had to wait for things to arrive by you know print, written down on a piece of paper on some form of transport to know what was going on in the outside world. In many instances, obviously, you listen to the World Service or whatever. So, but there were two magazines that really blew me away. And one was the launch of Q, uh, the music magazine, which and it's just its tone of sort of reverent irreverence. You know, they, they really took their subject seriously, but knew exactly how to pitch the, um, you know, the, 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 they knew exactly how to express the entertainment that they got from their love of music and some of that was serious and some of it was very you know about the great sort of folly of uh, of artists and musicians and the other magazine that really made an impact on me was Vanity Fair and it was the Vanity Fair that uh, um, uh, Tina Brown was editing and I think that was sort of it's like long American long-form journalism when it's done really well is absolutely the best it crushes all competition anywhere in the world I think and it doesn't happen very often. It's like American long-form journalism can too often stray into sort of sl- slight... They all, I think too many American journalists want to be academics and it gets a bit serious and solemn and, and boring and niche and dreary. But when it's at its best, like uh, Vanity Fair then consistently was, it's just unbelievably good. And that having her sort of finger on the pulse of all things powerful and influential, really understanding that how important people you know worked and you know their flaws and their failings and their vanities and all these kind of things 
just made me think that you know this this is I used to go and wait outside the news agent to see if it had, it had if the next issue had arrived you know I couldn't get enough of it for a while so those two things uh, those two magazines made me think you know this is uh, this is definitely a world I wanted to get into and I'd always fancied being a journalist but I'd never really done anything about it so when it got to kind of my it was coming up to my 30th birthday which feels like the the year when the shutters come down if you haven't done what you sort of dreamt of doing when you were a bit younger. Uh, if you haven't done it by 30, that's it. Your time's up. So just before I was 30, I thought, I've got to give this a last go. And it wasn't because I, you know, I didn't want to be a journalist because I wanted to change the world. I didn't feel I had anything I particularly wanted to say that was of great uh, import. I just really liked the look of that profession. You know, I, I thought that looks like great fun. Those seem like my kind of people. And uh, yeah, let me in. So, um, so I moved back to England and shoved my way in tell us more about about the shoving <laughs> sorry say again tell us more about how you shoved your way in oh i see yes well it's just i mean i think you need two things kind of you know you need a bit of luck and you need some connections and uh so it was a mixture of those three i studied freelancing for people um just wherever i could and um but uh the, i got involved with the fhm magazine in the so mid nineties, it must have been about ninety four, ninety five, um, when just as the men, the world of men's magazines was beginning to wake up to the fact that actually men wanted a slightly more interesting magazine than, um, you know, these uh, slightly laboured um, men's titles where they assumed everyone wanted to be like James Bond and talk about single malt scotch and fountain pens and this kind of stuff. So uh, I was very lucky to, I had a friend who worked at FHM at the time. FHM was was then a very small sort of men's uh, fashion magazine. And um, it just happened to have been bought by EMAP, uh, a big magazine company, uh, who were prepared to invest in it enormously. And um, a chap called Mike Sutar had taken over as the editor. And those two things together, um, you know, transformed it into this sort of what, very quickly became a magazine that was selling almost uh, one month. It sold over a million copies. It became the you know one of the biggest magazines in the country. So it was uh, it was a thing of great good luck really to have got involved with that magazine, with that editor, and at that particular time. So a lot of our listeners are are kind of aspiring journalists or young journalists um, who who just won't have had you know won't have been around or would have been of a sort of. Uh, conscious age in the in the 1990s could you when we when we have people talking about you know past media periods on the show what we always ask them to do is to you know explain it in the most kind of brutally honest way possible like take off no rose tinted spectacles like what was good what was bad you know explain to a to a 19 year old of today like what the the kind of magazine media landscape of of the mid 1990s was like as though you were explaining to an alien as it were ah well to me and again, because I came to it quite, you know, relatively late, um, the great thrill of it was being in that uh, building. The, the, the map then had two two buildings, a building where the sort of men's magazines were housed and a building where the women's magazines were housed. And the men's magazine uh, building was uh, on a tiny street called Winsley Street off Oxford Street. And so on our floor... So the, just the idea that this was a building that, that where all these magazines lived, to me, was kind of mind-blowing. You know, they're, they're all in the same place and all these people that you've heard of and this stuff you've read 
they're all there. So we were next door to uh, Smash Hits, and then next door to that was uh, Mojo, and across the corridor was Kerrang, and then downstairs was Empire and uh, Q, and uh, some other sort of younger people's magazines. So it was almost like, a, you know, when you hear people talking about things like uh, Tin Pan Alley in the you know, golden age of songwriting. You could go into a building and there would be all these, you know, famous songwriters. To me, it was that level of mind-blowing. So a journalist that I'd admired for years going up and down the stairs was just, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's like I couldn't compute. It was it was exactly where I wanted to be. And every off every magazine had its own, was in its own space, behind its own door. There's none of this, no hubs, no open plan. Uh, and every magazine had its own personalities. It would have its own pictures on the wall, its own way of doing things, its own kind of hierarchy. Um, and uh, and that sort of spirit that, you know, people being corralled into often very tiny spaces, you know, these weren't, you know, great, um, you know, football pitch sized offices. They, they were just minuscule and they just crammed more and more people in there as the magazine became more and more successful. And so you get these people working really long hours on top of each other and it develops an extraordinary spirit. And I think that's one of the things that used to absolutely shine through magazines. The, you know, the what, the, what they call the voice, you know, this, un, un, this understanding of what the values of the magazine were, the tone, the important things, the reference points, they just became second nature because people just lived it all the time. And it's something which has kind of gone from magazines now where, you know, hot, hot desking, whatever, even working from home is the absolute death knell, I think, for, for magazines. Because you're not in, if you're not in constant uh, prattling communication with people next to you, all the things that the tiny sort of microscopic things that become key ingredients of magazines just aren't there anymore. And I know the magazine industry has bigger, you know, concerns than than that, you know, having people in the same room. But that to me was the essence of of magazineness is people being really close together, spending a lot of time in really small rooms, in really and uh, as intense a form of of labor as you're ever going to experience, I think. You talked about um, the importance of tone. What would you say that the, the tone of FHM was when, we, when you arrived and, and how did it change over the years that you were there? Well, I think the, the tone of it was very much um, a sense of kind of bewilderment at the way men were, and we obviously most of us there were men, uh, were expected to behave. So part of it was a sort of sort of satire on what um, publishing for men had been like previously, whereas this thing of, uh, you know, uh, this just this assumption that everybody wanted to be like, you know, as I mentioned, wanted to be like James Bond. So that would, say, translate into um, uh, just absurd stories like how to you know, which which certain which men's magazines would write about with great seriousness, and these ideas would just come around again and again. Things like, um, you know, how which kung fu move to use if you're ever mugged uh, in the street, or um, uh, you know, which um, 
which supercar should you be thinking of buying? You know, they're just they're just things that it's just nonsense, you know, kind of rubbish. So it's very much a and and again, and they all men's magazines used to have this kind of assumption that all men, and this came from real life, it wasn't just a magazine thing, but this assumption that all men knew exactly how to behave in every circumstance. So especially when it came to anything to do with women, you know, all men knew how to sort of behave in the appropriate manly fashion. So I think one of the big things that FHM did was to recognise actually most men haven't got the first clue and most men sort of come from, um, are, are, you know, carrying this around sort of slightly as a sort of secret of some sort, you know, that I, is it only me? And so I think it comes a great relief to, to men to realise actually um, uh, uh, it's much you know, I'm in a in, a, in the minority with my sort of ignorance and cluelessness, and it's okay to say, you know, actually, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how what I'm supposed to be doing here. Or uh, now that I'm in a relationship, I don't really know how to make it work. Or, um, you know, so these sort of confusion and bewilderment of being a man were the norm, and therefore something to be kind of, um, you know, laughed at and uh, enjoyed in that way, rather than as uh, something to sort of cringe at an embarrassment. There's been a lot of discussion in recent years about the gender politics of publishing, about the way that women are depicted in men's magazines and so forth. What would you, you know, look at both at the time and, and looking back in terms of how the magazine depicted women and, and stuff like that? How does it, how did it feel at the time and how do you feel, feel about it now? Well, FHM was very, was very friendly, you know, had a very friendly attitude towards women, I think, you know, um uh the what you, you know it's undeniable that one of the reasons uh, it was successful was because it had pictures of uh celebrities in a state of some undress but you know nothing compared to what say you find in the um in the mail online uh today you know so i think in that sense it's actually think you know fhm even though it felt quite radical at the time was actually compared to today it was quite conservative so um Again, you know, it, there weren't. Um, it wasn't a magazine which depended on sort of stereotypical and misogynistic ideas uh, towards women, um, and it was, you know, it was enormously successful. And so I think that's that's the way to kind of uh, to measure it. You know, what what worked then, and that was very much, you know, the, the success of FHM, as sort of, you know, selling a million copies a month, sort of indicates just how um popular it was if it if it were a magazine which made people feel uncomfortable or awkward or was attracting uh endless criticism there's no way it would have been you know enjoyed such a um sort of golden few years you've mentioned in previous interviews the, the tube test that you applied to fhm covers would would a man be happy being seen reading it on the tube hmm. do you think someone hmm. today would would read fhm on the tube no, I mean, I think those, I, I, no, I mean, just because uh, it doesn't I mean it doesn't exist anymore. The, so it's not the, it's not because they would be uncomfortable with... The with, FHM of, of the 90s, I mean. Um, no, I don't see why not, you know. Uh, I mean, obviously people look at their phones, you know, and, and so I think uh, I think people are probably looking at, um, at uh, you know, 
FHM type material, for want of a better expression, you know, the, the brand values of FHM were very much the in anticipation of the of the internet. So the brand values were funny, sexy, useful. Those are the three things that the magazine tried to do constantly and consistently. And uh, I think you see, you know, those are three absolutely sort of foundation values of the uh, of the internet generally. Um, and so that's the clear, still the kind of things that that uh, that men are looking for. Because um, just now they're looking for it on their phone rather than as a as a printed product. During that high period, where I think as as you mentioned when we corresponded by email, that everything you're touching is turned to gold, you're shifting a million copies. How was that reflected in in the kind of resources that were available to you, and you know, in terms of yeah, what you're staffing, like what what you were able to do. When, when there was that much, when you were shifting that many copies? Um, well, it's always felt like it was done uh, on a very tight budget um, and it never went up. <laughs> so I mentioned, you know, being in these tiny rooms. Uh, so when I was deputy editor, I became, uh, so in the sort of late mid uh, so nineteen six, perhaps something like that, as a deputy editor, my salary felt... Um, just uh, I was quite shocked when I was when they said you know congratulations you got the job this is what we're going to be paying you and I was like oh really that, you know for such a successful magazine I thought you know surely you could do a bit better than that and I remember having a big fight with the publisher as well when we went away and uh, and which I'm still immensely ashamed of to this day but uh, we all had a bit too much to drink and said what we thought about the uh, the way we were being um, recompensed you know given that the magazine was doing so well so. It certainly wasn't a magazine that became successful because of throwing money at it. But later on, um, when FHM was launched internationally, and it did have a lot of very successful um, licensed editions, I think that in at its peak, I think it had maybe getting off of 30 different editions around the world, it became clear that uh, the value of the pictures that FHM was taking were considerable because they could manage to build this sort of licensing business on it. And then it, the the amount of money that was being paid to uh, photographers, certainly, or in kind of, you know, deals um, really exploded uh, because we worked out that if we, if we get sort of photographer A to take a picture of celebrity B and pay, uh, you know, very exclusive paper, the fee to make it exclusive then um it's you know it the money earned back in all these international editions buying it up and making their profit from it it suddenly made it all um, worthwhile so it did for, for a little while fhm had the market to itself it worked out that um uh, big female celebrities on the cover uh were absolute gold dust and we had a, a chap then when I was the editor who was the deputy editor Anthony who was uh, just brilliant at uh, negotiating with the right people in Hollywood to make this happen which is a really difficult skill and if anybody anybody has any familiarity with that um, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about really difficult people impossible demands having to work with them in the middle of the night uh, constantly changing their minds it's just impossible. Anyway, he worked out how to get in their groove and he made it happen. And that was one of the big reasons why FHM was so successful because had for just a few years, it was getting huge stars on the cover that nobody else had. Well, you know, GQ was still plodding along with uh, 
you know, Martin Amis or whatever. Um, and other people didn't know how to get them, to get these women. So after a while, obviously, everybody kind of uh, worked it out. And the the more sort of um, sophisticated magazines were able to sort of push in in front and uh, started putting big female stars on the, com- on the f- cover of their magazines, which kind of cut off the supply a little bit. And then it all, um, you know, I think that's when it, it started to, the, the market kind of re, you know, samed again, as it were. Everyone became a little bit the same. Maybe Martin Amish should have sort of stripped down a bit more, might have shifted some more copies. Yes, a little bit more brass strap. Exactly. Uh, when you made the step up from deputy editor to editor-in-chief, what changes did you um, implement? Uh, none, really. It's very much more of the same. You know, this is a this was a magazine which was on the um, on the up and up. Um, you know, I'd been as deputy. I think, well, I think there's two editors tend to have two sort of styles of editing, and everybody has to kind of do a bit of both. But uh, I think some editors are, um, are are sort of in the engine room type editors, and other editors are more sort of captain's table editors. So some prefer to be, you know, um, hands-on with the staff and producing the magazine. Others are much more interested in the more external things of uh, either um, uh, sort of publicity or going to events or shaking hands with advertisers, this kind of thing. And my thing is very much um, being, I'm I'm much more engine room. And uh, so I really, the thrill that I got from, editing the magazine was in actually making the pages, making the headlines, working with the staff, making sure the copy was good, making sure the captions were good. And obviously everybody has to do a bit of that. So you have to, everybody has to do a bit of the other rather. So I still have to, you know, go and say thank you to advertisers every now and again, that sort of thing. But um, really the thrill for me was in actually producing the thing. And that, you know, didn't change very much because I'd been doing a lot of that before. And when Mike was the editor, he was much more captain's table you know so he was a guy who would uh, who wouldn't be around you know if we were closing pages at 11 o'clock at night he would uh, he'd be gone and it was, it was quite a funny thing after he'd been gone for after he'd left um we bumped into his wife once because he was one day a week he always used to leave early so because i've got to go to my wife's my wife does yoga so i've got to go and uh, and uh, look after the kids. So we bumped into his wife once, shortly after he left, and said, "Oh, you know, Bev, how are you doing? How's the how's the yoga going?" And she said, "What yoga?" You know, it was just uh, he just he just been making up excuses to get out of the office early. So, um, but he was so it, things didn't change because I'd kind of been doing that. I'd been doing that anyway. And uh, why meddle with something that was so clearly a winning formula? You know, it was. I think if if there were changes, it was more in the uh, along the lines of how on earth are, the, are we going to get all these pages out because the magazine just got fatter and fatter and fatter, and so they were it was more solving the issues of how to keep the quality high and still get all these pages out at the end of the month. I wanted to ask in a moment about your your move to the US, but a question I had was. Um, you know, when you went out on on an assignment for FHM and said you were here from FHM in, in various contexts, what kind of reaction did you get from the people you were writing about, or you know, what did you? How were your journalists perceived when they went out on their on their jobs, as it were? Was it easy to get access, or was there a sort of wryness about it? How did that one work? No, I mean, generally, kind of people were 
kind of wow great you know what you guys must be living the most amazing life you know because this this magazine at the time it was the biggest thing uh um it sold the most copies it was and it had this sort of sense of um this is you know these people are just leading an, a, an incredible life it looks like great fun and uh you also should be massively enjoying yourself so so what's it like i think and that's a that um so there was never any no i think mean, if you're implying was there any awkwardness or any you know did people feel a bit um I not awkwardness know. just uh, interested uh, yeah what what it was like getting access and getting people to talk and you know i think i read it through the gq editor once who said that they would send people to interview politicians and they'd always think oh, i'll be all about the suit and then actually they'd you know they'd be wanting to to get pretty in depth with the the reporting and things but yeah just just you know what it was like in terms of getting people to speak to you and it was it was fine it was it was never never a challenge at all i mean you have to bear in mind that people most people speak to magazines because they're trying to sell something and they you know they're not they don't just do it because they feel like it or because they like the magazine you know they've been there's uh, there's a publicist behind them who says you're going to speak to magazine a b and c and you speak to magazine a because it sells the most and you speak to magazine b because it's the most influential and you speak to magazine C because uh, we know someone there and we like them. So uh, if you're the one that sells the most and delivers the biggest audience, then it's pretty easy to get on that schedule. Before I'll let Simon move on to the, the Rolling Stone years, but this is a sort of last question about this. I sort of I wondered what you thought the lasting cultural impact was of, of sort of men's magazines, because I know they sort of went downhill in, in 2001 and you moved to Rolling Stone in 2002, but... When I was doing my research, I was amused to see that there was a reference to the loaded generation in the Houses of Parliament in a debate. I mean, what do you think the sort of the lasting, yeah, the lasting impact has been of, of men's magazines? Oh, I've never really thought of that. But uh, I mean, because they just they came and went and they had their moment. And then, you know, um, they sort of served their purpose and it, and it disappeared. So I think... Uh, I'm not sure people really. I honestly don't know. I don't. Know, I don't. Uh, I'm struggling to answer that one. I have to get back to you on that one, as as we say in journalism. Can we move on to to your time in the US? But but particularly in the context. And again, you mentioned this when we were emailing about the difference in American versus British magazine culture. So in terms of the size of staffs, the level of budgets and resources, and then you know the kind of access to. How was that? How was that both for you personally and for the the industry as a whole? So, yes, yeah, so I moved to the United States in 99 and I launched the American edition of FHM there. I did that for two and a half, sort of two and a half, three years. And 2002, I went to Rolling Stone. And when I went to Rolling Stone, then uh, that was a, a sort of revelation as to how um, a proper American magazine is produced. So you're asking about, uh, you know, resources and access and things like that. Um, suddenly, and when I, you know, when I had to launch um, uh, FHM, his magazine that people hadn't necessarily heard of, or they didn't know what it was going to be like, or they're a bit sort of nervous about it. American sort of publishing tends to be a lot more, or certainly then tended to be a lot more conservative. They're worried it was going to be a bit too racy. They're worried they they said, "Ah, oh, we'll wait and see if we, you know how you do, and then we'll, we'll work out if we're going to get involved with you." So it became a little bit difficult to get people wrangle people for the covers then, um, whereas. In contrast, at Rolling Stone, the sort of reputation of that magazine, the legend of that magazine, the quality of the photographers that they worked with um, was such that um, they you could kind of call anybody, any A-list 
any A-list celebrity and they would pretty much drop what they were doing in order to, um, you know, take up an offer to appear on the cover. So that was like night and day in that sense. And when you uh, when you took up your role there, was it the same sort of engine room writing headlines really involved in getting the stuff on the page? Yes. I mean, it's, a, it's you know, American magazines traditionally, uh, and again, this is all in the past. I don't re- really know how things are now from my perspective of a magazine with a staff of one in, and a staff of one in which I'm effectively the intern. Um, the, the, but then there was, you know, they would have kind of, twice as many staff, at least twice as many staff. Um, was Rolling Stone came up, was fortnightly then, um, so it would naturally have more people. But just uh, the, the sort of levels of seriousness, so the, you know, copy editing team, um, fact-checking team, uh, lots of the editors had assistants. Um, the, you know, there were just numbers of people doing tasks that... You know, magazines like FHM in the UK never even dreamt of having. You know, the the editor would, uh, you know, the person who'd sign the story would edit it. There was no copy editing. There's no fact checking. Um, it would, you know, or rather, there wasn't a sort of separate level of those things. It was all kind of done by the same person. So suddenly, the idea that a that a piece of copy had to make its way through almost like this this you know it's like a bit of film through a projector sort of pass all these different gates and uh, uh, was um, just something that was uh, that was completely new to me what was your relationship with Jan Wenner like because obviously he was the sort of founder right and and how did uh, we really know some friction with that and how did you negotiate that interaction well that's one of the reasons why I wanted to work at Rolling Stone uh, um, Jan was the founder of the magazine in the 60s and had become, you know, over the, you know, he had the vision to, you know, produce a, a, a really forward-thinking magazine at a time when, you know, music and politics and culture were all somehow interwoven. You know, the idea that you would launch a magazine nowadays about music and politics is just... Uh, you know, the people would look at you like there's something wrong with you. You just escaped from a special hospital. You know, it's like launching a magazine about politics and uh, take away food. You know, the things that don't necessarily seem to have anything to do with each other. But then, you know, I'd read that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, that, would be, that would be well, well up Rachel Street, actually. The you know the counterculture was such that all these things were kind of really enmeshed, and the country was the United States was just changing so. Um, dramatically, that he, you know, he, he had the vision to produce, you know, to produce a magazine out of it and a magazine which which was successful and that connected with people. So, and through that became a, you know, very, um, uh, you know, handsomely rewarded uh, mogul. You know, he rose from being, you know, to, from being a magazine editor to being a player in bigger fields. You know, in, in very well connected to the entertainment world, very well connected to the political world. And that's, you know, that's something. So I was very eager to see what it's like to go from working at a company like EMAP, where they're immensely supportive of the whole editorial side of things, to a company like Wenner Media and Rolling Stone, where, you know, there is somebody at the top of the company who has kind of ultimate power everything, but it's at the same time, it's a very powerful magazine to be part of. And uh, so we got on very well. You know, we we had a good relationship. He was quite interested in bringing somebody in from outside at the time. And 
but it's also quite frightening, you know, because he's uh, to work for somebody who ultimately can do what they want, or even worse, they can make you do what they want, and there's not much you can do about it. You know, if if uh, somebody who, you know who, with that level of um, power and control decides, oh, I don't like what you've done at all, and even though magazine's going tomorrow, you've got to do it again. You don't have any comeback. So, um, so there's you know it's a it's a very different different scenario. I mean, he's has a sort of certain fame for being quite a difficult individual. When I when I was at FHM, there's a woman who worked there who'd worked for Rolling Stone for many years. When she found out I was going, she said, you are out of your mind. You know, you are going to have the toughest time there. You know, um, she did, she was genuinely shocked that I was thinking of going there. Um, but that was, again, that was one of the things that I wanted to see. I wanted to experience that and find out just what it is like to work um, in a very different journalistic environment. I read a piece that you wrote, I think, in The Guardian in 2007, which sort of reflected on that period with a bit of sort of nostalgia talking about velvet ropes and five-star mm. hotels. Was it as glamorous as that or was that a bit of sort of, you know, creative storytelling, if you will? Well, not so much not so much at Rolling Stone because that, that was uh, not a magazine that kind of encouraged um people to sort of uh you know go out and live the life you know it wasn't a place of press trips and um you know everybody sort of going down the pub at the end of the working week it was a very very serious magazine and people people took it immensely immensely seriously but uh, the other two magazines that i edited there fhm excuse me and then maxim which at the time was the biggest men's magazine in the world they were all about um you know, extracting maximum pleasure from the experience of being a uh, a journalist or working on a magazine at that time, that period in history. So um, there was certainly plenty of, um, uh, you know, as you say, velvet ropes and uh, free cocktails and uh, that kind of thing. So one of the things I was talking about earlier when you were asking about resources and the sort of growth of it, at uh, when we arrived in... America with FHM, there's a big, uh, FHM used to do a big supplement called the 100 Sexiest Women, which was a massively successful money spinning um, uh, supplement, both in terms of sales and in terms of press that it generated. It was a genius idea. And um, when this became a, a sort of an, when FHM became an international publication with all these licenses, the American edition had a big party in Los Angeles for the for the first American edition of this, and it was gigantic. And we it was one of these things with had uh, sort of panthers in cages and uh, uh, had some kind of international theme. I can't quite remember what it was, but the winner of the you know the woman top of the list that year was Jennifer Lopez, and to get Jennifer Lopez to come along, she had to be you know uh, given some kind of inducement. And you can't just kind of bung them a load of money. That would be completely inappropriate. So she was given a gift, and the gift was a, a Jaguar car. And I think it cost about $80,000. But the sort of logic of this was that uh, she gets this um, gift. Um, uh, the, you know, the, the magazines kind of uh, collectively fund it. Each magazine will then... Uh, generate so much profit from having these pictures and this press that 
the, the cost of the car, it just vanishes in ter- when compared to the amount of money that could be made from this piece of investment. So anyway, she came along to this party with a gigantic entourage and uh, picked up the car. And it was my job to give her the car keys. So there's a little presentation where she came up and, um, you know, sort of asked her a few questions and uh, said a few nice things to her. And said, congratulations, you know, Jennifer Lopez, you, are the, you really are the sexiest woman in the world. And here are the keys. And she said, thank you very much. And off she went. And uh, the... Cheers uh, for the car. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> My work here is done. Yeah, quite. Well, you would have thought so. But no, she she vanished. Off she went with her entourage. And it really was a mess. I can't remember. I, for some reason, I remember it was about 60 people. But I, it can't have been it can't have been that gigantic. Anyway, she had lots of friends and lots of people around then about a couple of hours later, somebody came up to me and said, uh, yeah, we need to move the car now. So have you got the keys? So of course I haven't got the keys. You know, I gave them to, I gave them to Jennifer Lopez. They said, oh, well, she's gone off with them. So what, what, what do you want us to do with the car? She just left the car behind and uh, left it for somebody else to deal with. That was how, uh, you know, unremarkable it was to, in, her, in the life of Lopez, you know, presumably it happens every other day. Could we um, talk about your, your sort of post-Glossy magazine life so you know you you then you leave Rolling Stone and you, you set up your grand parade is it your own sort of agency what was your did you not were you kind of done with magazines then or what was your well I think uh, so I moved back from the United States in 2006 and it was became clear that the you know the bloom was off the rose certainly with regards to men's magazines uh, they were kind of selling significantly less than they had done in their in their heyday and um and magazines generally, you know, the, the, the internet had by then really started to make an impression uh, on the magazine markets. The way the, way the internet, the magazine, magazine industry was completely blindsided by the internet. You know, it, I remember we first kind of, when it first sort of appeared, we thought, oh, that's not very good, is it? You know, that's, uh, I remember watching a picture download and it took um, about two minutes to download a single picture. I thought, well, that's, you know, you don't have to worry about that. And then it, it sort of improved a little bit and we thought... Uh, well, maybe we should have a website, but we'll, we're not going to give anything away from the magazine. You know, that, well, why would we do that? We'll just give it the rubbish, you know, the stuff that's not good enough to go in the magazine. So that went on the website. And so obviously every step of the way, magazines were just too slow to catch on to the uh, revolutionary potential of the internet. And But also, it's, you know, magazines are already portable. They're already accessible. They're already, you know, they can't, it's not a, product that could be much much improved by being made digital you know it's the magic is in the paper and uh, so it was on a bit of a bit of a um hide is nothing anyway so by 2006 i could kind of see i i, I need a, i need to get out of this somehow uh, i need to find a, a bit more of a lifeboat so with a colleague i launched this company called grand parade which was the uh an online as colleague for a uh, colleague from America, a friend from America. We did it together. Uh, an English guy who'd been in America at the same time. And he, we, the idea was to produce, uh, and it was an online publishing platform, an online publishing company devoted to sports and betting. This was our theory. So there'd been, um, suddenly sports people had started to appear much more on the, on the front pages as well as the back pages. And people were becoming, uh, so, that, you know, betting related information was becoming more newsy rather than sportsy and there's only really the racing post and at the time the sporting life 
uh, and then obviously a bit of racing in the newspapers that dealt with with betting. Whereas I thought here's a potential of something that could be a much become much more mainstream, and you know people talk about it and. Even, you know, people talk about betting and or probability of one thing happening over another in sports all the time, even if they don't even have a bet on it. And it, we just happened to do it at the same time as there was a big change in betting, in regulation governing, governing advertising and betting. And it became, it took off um, uh, slowly at first and then it did, it did okay. Um, but what um, companies were really interested in was the technological side of what we were doing. So it became, uh, we bought the company in Poland that, de- that did all the sort of development for websites and uh, um, the sort of technical aspect, you know, uh, putting feeds, putting live odds into copy, this kind of thing, uh, producing banner ads, which would know which team you'll support, which team you supported and all these kind of things. And and that side of it grew massively uh, for one reason in particular was that my colleague a bloke called Andy Clarkson was a massively entrepreneurial individual and uh, and really you know worked every angle and it became very successful but it was the technology that made it successful and my you know just as I have I, I find no challenge at all spending seven days a week reading books and writing about books and thinking about books I find it really difficult to spend seven minutes thinking about technology it just you know it just doesn't spark my imagination so the fact the company went off in a in a much more technological direction and that's where the growth was and uh after was it eight years i was there for i think uh i left and um let them let them go on their technological way but it did very well and you know it was it was a successful company um and to turn to strong words um, as we're nearing the end of our time you mentioned sort of it has to be financially sustainable um, how many cop- I mean if you're willing to tell us how many copies you sell sort of each edition uh, well that's 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 still a, a private figure it's a uh, it's a, it's still an you know it's an ex- it's an exclusive club um, but I'm sort of happy for um, uh, for, for people to uh, to join Um it's it's still funded by the uh, by the Bank of Ed Needham, which is slightly frustrating. You know, it's uh, like I said, you know, marketing is the the marketing is the aspect which has been a little bit neglected on this magazine. But I firmly believe that um, uh, you know people, um, you, know, you know, people the the relationship between magazines and people is just as strong as it ever was. It's just that there aren't so many magazines about, and I'm also like you know if the if, you know the the uh, the, the Kubler Ross uh, five stages of of um, five stages of grief. You know when something has died. And if the magazine industry has died, I'm still very much in the first stage of that denial, complete you know, possibly in the first stage of the first stage, which is that absolute refusal to accept that magazines don't have a really important part to play in life and a great deal of potential to you know make, make people really happy. And uh, so my, you know, my goal really is to obviously sell magazines, but to sell magazines by being useful and by being entertaining. And they are qualities that uh, I feel will, you know, survive regardless of the uh, the uh, technological environment. 
And as a, a final question from me, what has the reaction been from from authors and from the, the literary industry as well? I saw you've got a great selection of endorsements in, in the magazine itself. But yeah, what, what's the feedback from that part of the world been like? Well, good. Very good. You know, because uh, as, as I sort of mentioned earlier on, you know, the, the, the book industry has a hard time finding uh, opportunities to expose a great deal of its product. You know, there are the, 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 I think there's something like, because I can't remember the number now, but it's uh, uh, hundreds of, th- I can't remember, hundreds of thousands of books come out every year, every single year. So that's, and, you know, only a tiny handful of them get any sort of attention. And it's really unfortunate that a lot of those books that get the attention are books which have a celebrity attached to them, who often didn't even write the book in the first place, you know, ghostwritten or somebody else has kind of done it for them. So uh, the, it, and obviously newspapers and, you know, TV love that because then they can get somebody famous on. Whereas people who are grafting away and, uh, you know, it's pouring years of their lives and, you know, just agonies of the soul into these uh, often really superb, magnificent books, um, they don't get any attention at all. So the publishing industry, on the whole, is delighted to see a magazine which is devoted to books and which really cares about books and which is interested in just communicating that uh, love of books to other people. So the, the idea with Strong Words Reviews is that they look at me by the magazine and they say, well, that yeah, that's the book for me. You know, I'm not trying to say, well, this book is better, is not as good as their last one, or I feel that this is, you know, really important in the culture at the moment. I just want people to read the review, think, I'm going to get that one. And that's how it works. Um, and as a as a final question, you've um, said that you've learned some some insights about how secrets, I think you put it, of how authors write. Are you willing to share any of them with, with listeners? <laughs> well, they're not so much, I mean, so secrets. I think... Um, I'm going to. I'm going to start doing a podcast with strong words about uh, about writing, about the technique of writing, and but there are two aspects which you cannot avoid. So I write about in strong words every issue. I write about there's a, a feature called How to Write, in which I look at a uh, it tends to be a novel, famous novel, uh, and look at the sort of historical background to that novel. So it's not so much. Um, you know, this is such and such a person started at that time of day, or they used a particular fountain pen. It's the, it's what happened in their life. You know, the steps that they went through that built up to that novel being being written. And there are two things from studying all these, you know, reading all these histories and biographies of people and how they wrote their books. The two things which are inescapable, you have to do. One is you have to have read a lot. There's just no way around that. I have yet to find a single author who has written something, you know, really groundbreaking or which has stood the test of time who hasn't read a ton and often from a very early age. So that's one. The other thing you have to do, which is not negotiable, it's persevere. You have to stick with it. So even though these people who have seem to have written, seem to have enjoyed overnight success, you don't need to look into it very hard to find that, you know, it took them years to get to that point of overnight success. So the one of the great examples is someone like um, uh, Frederick Forsyth in The Day of the Jackal, which everyone always talks about as having been written almost overnight. I think it took him 30 days to write it. So I think it's a miraculous piece of writing, sit down and churn it out that quickly. And so it's such a beautiful book. But to, to get to that point, it took him 
eight or 10 or 12 years of being a foreign correspondent, of being in Africa and seeing how mercenaries worked, of being in France and seeing how unprotected Gen- General de Gaulle, de Gaulle was and being bored around him and thinking, so if I was going to assassinate him, how would I go about doing it? So these are the kind of years of uh, unavoidable persistence and thinking and, you know, letting your novel idea brew or whatever it has to transformative process has to go through before you get it out so you've got you've got to read a lot and you've got to persist well look thanks for being a a great guest on always take notes um wishing you all the best with strong words going forward and i hope you maybe get a day off at some stage thank you so much me too it's been a real pleasure to be here thanks for having me hello it's us again uh, what did you make of our interview with Ed, Simon? It was really interesting. I mean, I this is showing my age, but I can remember FHM from the high period being sort of thrown around on the back of coaches on the way to rugby matches when I was a teenager. Although I don't think I, don't think I ever bought it. Um, so definitely it played a part in my sort of childhood. Um, I thought very interesting, and I thought his kind of personal journey from, from lads mag mogul to single-handedly producing this... Uh, really fun publication, pretty pretty extraordinary actually. What about what about you, Rachel? Yeah, I mean, Strong Words is a huge endeavour. I don't know. I mean, he has no time off basically, which is remarkable. Um, at, at, lit, literally none at all. Literally none at all. Um, it did make me laugh a little bit when he said he was going to launch a podcast, <laughs> and our faces were a bit like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to listening um but yeah i thought it was really interesting um i'm obviously not my kind of reading material but uh, you know hugely successful um and yeah i'm glad we got him on the show um where have we have we walked the line successfully do you think between between chatty and cringy in this outro uh so far i would say yes then also you know some lovely people on twitter said that they liked our outros so you know that one, one, one lovely person at least. Anyway, Look. what have you been? <laughs> I was trying to hype it up. Um, what have I been up to? Um, the mad sort of end of year rush. Um, so yes, editing things, uh, writing. I wrote uh, a roundup of the best TV shows of 2020. Um, how about you? Um, I have also had a really busy week just trying to get stuff get stuff done. Um, I have done the next version of this opus for Runner's World, which is sort of off my uh, plate. I thought I was going to have to go to Cornwall to write about vaccine distribution, but then it all got delayed, uh, so that that's not happening. So really, yeah, just trying to trying to get stuff sorted. I'm trying to get a visa for the Congo for a story at the moment, which is a bit of a bit of an undertaking. But yeah, kind of wrapping up for the uh, the end of the year. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvine. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us, please do. Great. Many thanks. Goodbye. Goodbye.